0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. Just so you know going into this, John the Baptist is one of my absolute favorite characters. In the entire Bible, he is one of the MVPs of Scripture to me that people don't talk about nearly enough, and he's also one of the characters that I wish we knew more about. Uh, So I'm very, very excited to talk about his stuff today. Uh, And just to recap the context, since we've had a few weeks of looking at some other stuff, uh, where we ended in Matthew chapter 2 was with the birth narrative and the childhood narrative of Jesus, basically. And really, we didn't have a lot of information in that regard, right? We basically just got to see the circumstances of his birth, the appearance of the Magi, and then the whole narrative involving him having to escape to Egypt with his family before returning back and going up to Nazareth after the death of Herod the Great. And so that is where we left off with Jesus as a child growing up in Nazareth, and where we're going to be picking up right here, we're going to have to fast forward about 30 years. And I know that's a big time jump, but let me explain why. So as we go into this, before we even start, we're going to see that Matthew decides to start the main body of his story by detailing the ministry of John the Baptist. And Matthew is not unique in this regard, Actually, every single one of the four Gospels begins the story of Jesus, not with Jesus, but with John the Baptist. Whether you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, none of them just jump immediately to Jesus. Every single one of them feels the need to start with John the Baptist. And the question many people might have is, why? What is the importance of starting with John the Baptist? Well, right off the bat, I think you can just say that he was a very significant figure, but I specifically want to answer this question in regards to Matthew's choice for starting with John the Baptist, and I think we're going to see right off the bat that he has two primary reasons for starting with John the Baptist ministry. The first one is a narratival choice, and the second one is a theological choice, uh, and those are the method, the reasonings behind it. Uh, Let me address the theological one first, and we're going to—I'll be—I'll be be explaining this a little bit more in depth as we go through the text. But the theological reasoning for him to start here, and I think the theological reason for almost all the other gospels to start with the ministry of John the Baptist, is because this is the natural place to begin the story that the Old Testament ended, because if you go to the very end of the Old Testament, uh, specifically how we have the Old Testament organized in our Christian Bibles, ending with the book of Malachi, you'll see that the final prophet of the Old Testament made some specific prophecies about this coming figure who would pave the way for the Lord and John the Baptist fits the bill. And as you read through the Gospels, Jesus himself clarifies that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And so I think that's the greater theological reason for why each of the four Gospels feels the need to start with John the Baptist, because where the Old Testament ends, the New Testament begins. It picks up right where it left off, even though hundreds of years have passed. And so that's the theological reason for why Matthew did that uh, and why all the other Gospels did that. And we'll break that down a little bit more in depth as we go through this. But uh, there's also a narratival reason for why Matthew is doing this, I believe. And in order to understand the narratival reason why this is the next sequential thing that would come in Matthew's narrative, I think we need to remember the context that Matthew has established in Matthew chapters 1 and 2. The way that Matthew has framed the story so far is that the people of Israel at the time of Jesus, and especially at the childhood of Jesus, these people are people who have basically become the new Egypt, right? Uh, We have seen that being referenced kind of throughout this whole thing where King Herod is like the new Pharaoh leading a new opposition against his own people. And so in this bitter, dark irony, Israel has become the new Egypt and the people are in bondage once again, not to Egypt, but to their own sin, which is an even worse form of captivity. And so what we're going to see John the Baptist doing as he steps into the picture is that he is like a new Moses preparing people for the new Joshua, who will ultimately lead them through the Jordan River and into the promised land. But another thing that Matthew has done in chapters 1 and 2 through a lot of the prophecies that he's quoted is that he has quoted prophecies that are specifically tied to the people of Israel shortly before their exile, right? Uh, Specifically the people of Judah before their exile to Babylon. And through a lot of those prophecies, what we saw—and that's why we spent like two weeks going through this because I wanted us to understand this point that Matthew is making here— is that the people of Israel were being punished for their hard-heartedness and their sin and their stiff-neckedness. And as a result, God was sending them into captivity. However, in those prophecies, God gave promises that eventually the exiled remnant would return, and they would come back into the land, and they would be once again freed from their captivity, and they would dwell in a new kingdom where the Messiah reigned enthroned. And we talked about how some of those prophecies were a bit difficult to work through because some of them didn't seem overtly messianic, but at the same time, they expected greater fulfillment. There were certain elements of those prophecies that were not entirely fulfilled, in their original immediate context, and so they are awaiting a greater fulfillment in the long run, and so I think that Matthew is using both the Exodus story and the exile to frame his story. So in one way, John the Baptist is going to be this Moses figure, paving the way for the new, um, paving the way for the new Joshua. But John the Baptist is also going to be this figure who is preparing the people to return from exile, and so I think that we actually have two of those events going on right now. We've got this new exodus showing up in the story of Jesus, and John the Baptist is preparing the people for that new exodus, Uh, but then we also have uh, this new return from exile showing up here, and you have to start with John the Baptist in order to pave the way for Jesus in order to understand what he's doing there, but I'm not just kind of coming up with this out of nowhere, I think that Matthew actually demonstrates this through the details that he shares in his gospel. And so we're going to walk through it and we're going to see that. And going forward, I just want to highlight some things. Uh, You'll notice that I've got two different colors of text on the screen, uh, and this is what you're going to see going forward through the text. In Matthew chapters 1 and 2, it was mainly all blue, and that's because blue represents things that are unique to the gospel of Matthew. Matthew. Uh, Whereas white is stuff that is found in either Mark or Luke or Mark and Luke as well. And so what I wanted to do is I color-coded this whole thing just to highlight to you the specific details that Matthew lists that make his account unique, right? Because that will help us figure out exactly what Matthew's focus is and how Mark and Luke are focusing on something slightly different. And so let's walk through this and let me kind of defend my position uh, in the fact that Matthew has both these narrative and theological reasons for starting with John the Baptist because he doesn't share anything about Jesus' childhood like Luke does. He doesn't share a lot of information. He just skips 30 years and starts with John the Baptist, and this is why. So we read, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. All right, so right off the bat, we see that not only is Jesus fulfilling prophecy, but so too is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, according to Matthew, is fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40 where it says there's a voice crying in the wilderness saying, "Make ready the way for the Lord, make his path straight." And Matthew isn't the only one who cites this verse, as you'll notice since it's quoted in white here. Mark, Luke, and John also cite this verse. Every single one of the gospels associates John the Baptist, with this particular verse, which makes us ask the question, what's the deal with this verse? And kind of like the other prophecies, we are going to devote an entire week to breaking this prophecy down more in depth. But just to give you the spark notes version of it, Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 are primarily dealing detailing oracles of judgment upon the people of Judah because of their growing sin and at the very end of chapter 39 uh, basically for the majority of those chapters Assyria is the big looming threat over the people of Judah but then through the faithfulness of a king named Hezekiah God delivers them from Assyria but then Hezekiah makes a big boo-boo at the end of this section and in chapter 39 God says you know what you don't have to fear the Assyrians anymore but instead You have to fear the Babylonians, and they're going to come down here, and they're going to take you into exile, and y'all are going to die in exile. And so chapter 39 ends on a major bummer of a note. But then you go to chapter 40, and you have this amazing promise where God says that he wants to comfort the people because, yes, they're going to go into exile, but eventually they're going to come back. And that's where you find this verse that says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This verse is using Exodus type language to talk about the return from exile, right? There's a voice crying in the wilderness saying, hey, everybody, prepare for a new Exodus because God is going to take you from captivity in Babylon and bring you back Home. And so, this is what the context of that's about. And that is the verse that every single one of the Gospels quotes in reference to John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is the voice preparing the people to return from exile. And so, you see how that lines up with the same thing that Matthew has established in chapters one and two. The people of Israel might not be dwelling in a foreign land. But they're still in captivity, right? They might not be dwelling in Egypt or Babylon, but that's because they have become the greater Egypt and the greater Babylon. They have become their own worst enemy, and they are in captivity in their sins, thinking that they are safe. That's the scariest part of this whole thing. They think they're free. But they're not they think that the romans are their biggest problem but they're not that is what matthew is communicating here and so john the baptist shows up and he is preaching in the wilderness of judea it's no surprise that he's in the wilderness right because the people are going to have to go into the wilderness to find him right they're gonna have to go out to him metaphorically going into exile whenever you think of wilderness specific specifically in biblical language You have to realize that is exile language. The people have to go into exile to find him, and what we're going to see is that they're going to have to pass through the Jordan River and re-enter into the land, walking through the footsteps of the people of Israel, metaphorically washing themselves clean and entering in as new people, right? That is exactly what Matthew, uh, that's what John the Baptist is going to be doing here. And so John the Baptist shows up, he's preaching the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the word repentance it means to turn around, to change your mind, to change who you are, to recognize you're going one direction and now you need to go another one. And John the Baptist tells everybody to change direction, right? They might be living in the land of Israel, they might think they've got it good, they might think they're the people of God, but he's saying you're missing the point. You might be heading in one direction but you need to head the other direction because the kingdom of heaven is at hand it is here it is looming he is telling these people to get their stuff together and sure enough when you go back to some of those prophecies specifically in jeremiah whenever um, matthew quoted the prophecy about um the weeping in rhema and rachel weeping for her children if you look at the broader context of jeremiah chapter 31 the way that rachel stops weeping is whenever the people repent and prepare for the kingdom of god to arrive in order for a new covenant to be established that is exactly what John the Baptist is doing here. He shows up and says, everybody, you need to repent. You need to get your act together. You need to start seeking God again because his kingdom is about to arrive. Right? He is the voice in the wilderness saying, prepare the way for the Lord. The kingdom, the king is about to show up and you do not want to be slacking off on your job when he's read, when he gets here. Right? You want to make sure that his kingdom is ready. You want to give him a warm welcome. You don't want to reject him. And unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of people who do reject Jesus for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness make ready the way of the lord make his path straight like i said we're going to go a lot more in depth into that particular verse in the weeks to come whenever we actually look at these prophecies more in depth but for right now you can see where this is heading so let's move on now john himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey now this might sound like a very particular detail and once again this is something we're going to look into in-depth again in a few weeks. But for right now, I want to point out something to you that people often overlook. Not only is John the Baptist a preacher, but he's an actor. And he is intentionally stepping into a role to send a clear message. And in order to understand what that role is, you need to realize that there is another person back in the Old Testament who dressed very similar to John and did a lot of things very similar to John and was calling people to repentance. And that was a guy named Elijah right Elijah did all of these things and any god-fearing Jewish person would have known who Elijah was because Elijah was a person who showed up to the people of Israel during their worst and lowest time period during the times of King Ahab and Elijah shows up and he called the people to repentance and he started setting in motion this massive revival that led people back to God John the Baptist shows up and he is intentionally walking in the footsteps of Elijah why would he do this well It's because, and this goes to the narratival thing that I mentioned before and the theological thing that I mentioned before. It actually ties both of them together. If you go to the very end of the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament, if you go to Malachi chapter 4, this is the final section. It's only six verses long. I'm going to read the whole thing. This is the final promise that God makes in regards to what he's going to do in the future. He says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, And all the arrogant and every worker of wickedness will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them aflame, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. So it's promising judgment followed by an eternal kingdom. And you will tread down the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. So he's preparing them for judgment day. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and judgments which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. So God tells them, remember the law, follow the law, remember my commands and do them. And then he says this final promise of the entire Hebrew Bible. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land, devoting it to destruction." The final promise of the entire Old Testament is that before God sets in motion the events that lead to his eternal kingdom, Elijah the prophet is going to show up and lead another massive revival. This is what the Jewish people were waiting for. This is what Jewish people to this day are still waiting for. John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he intentionally plays a role. He dresses up like Elijah. He goes out and he does things like Elijah. He starts calling people to repentance like Elijah because he is sending the message, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get your act together because somebody's about to show up who is going to change everything, right? He is calling the people to get ready because their exile is coming to an end. Not an exile in Babylon, not an exile in Egypt, but an exile from their sin, right? They are about to be redeemed they are about to be freed from their bondage and taken back into the land and the people understand this the people understand it in a way that we typically overlook it because we read then jerusalem was going out to him and all judea and all the district around the jordan and they were being baptized by him in the jordan river as they confessed their sins so they go out there and they step into the waters and they're made clean and people might ask, what's the deal with this whole baptism thing? Let me tell you what's rep- what's the initial thing right here. Baptism later on is going to take a little bit of a different meaning, um, but it's just going to be a progression of the same thought. But John is very specific in what he's doing here. He is choosing to go out into the wilderness. He is choosing to go to the Jordan River. First off, do you know where the last place we saw Elijah was? At the Jordan River. He ascended in a chariot of fire. At the Jordan River. That's the last place we saw him. And then after that moment, his protege, Elisha, took over, right? So John the Baptist is going to the very same place where Elijah was last seen. And he is doing the things that Elijah did. He is dressing like Elijah did. He is calling people to repentance. And all the prophets in the Old Testament were preparing the people for exile, right? And he would they were, and a lot of them were saying, Y'all have gone so far that you have to go into exile, and it's only through going into exile that you can truly be made right with God again. That is the message that John is sending right here, right? He is asking the people of Israel, who are the new Egypt, the new Babylon, he is asking them to step into the wilderness, to metaphorically go into exile and then pass through the waters of the Jordan River and re-enter into the land, just like they did whenever they followed Joshua into the Promised Land for the very first time after, the bondage, after their bondage in Egypt. He is asking them to cross the Jordan River just like David had to do after he was exiled by his son Absalom during Absalom's rebellion. Right? He is asking the people to follow in the footsteps of their ancestors, to go into exile, to repent, and to be restored unto God but now the waters aren't parting for them right because whenever the people of Israel first entered into the promised land the waters parted but now they have to be submerged into the water they have to be immersed they go in and they come out new people metaphorically being washed of their sins that is what John the Baptist is calling them to do he is calling these people to go into exile and then through repentance be returned unto God in order for Israel to become Israel again. Israel has to leave Israel and become Israel. (laughs) I know that's kind of confusing, but that's because Israel has become the new Egypt. Israel has become their own slave masters. They are the people enslaving themselves through their legalism and their bondage to sin. And if you don't believe me, just look at the next thing we see here. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children for Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So I want you to notice who specifically... John the Baptist is targeting. He's not targeting the king at that time. He's not targeting the different prefects or the procutors of Judea. He is specifically targeting the religious leaders. Who are the Pharisees and Sadducees? These are two of the predominant sects at the time period of Jesus, right? there are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots, the Essenes. Some people suggest that John was an Essene. I don't necessarily think that he was i think that maybe he had some similar practices to them but i don't think he was an essene but the things you need to know about the pharisees and sadducees the sadducees are more of the priestly class and a lot of them were predominantly aristocracy and the pharisees were more the common people but they were known for being very very righteous and both of these guys were super super devout to the law but they kind of focused on different things the sadducees they As the priests, they were more focused on the ritual aspects of the law, so they would focus more on sacrifices and things in regards to the temple, whereas the Pharisees were more focused on the moral aspects of the law, right? Just making sure that your life was living in a manner that was honoring to God. And in all honesty, the Pharisees are probably the closest to Christians that we see the Jews being, right? If Jesus belonged to one of these groups, he would have been a Pharisee. He wasn't any of them, I don't believe. Uh, Like, we have no reason to think that he was any of them, and he's always getting on to them, so he was separate. But he probably aligned most closely with the Pharisees, hence why he has to get on to them so much, because they were so close, but they got a lot of things wrong. And that's specifically who John the Baptist starts targeting, because those are the people, these Pharisees and Sadducees, They're the ones who are predominantly keeping the people in captivity, right? It's not the Romans, right? Because as we're going to see, these people are not free people at this time period. The Romans are the ones in charge and the people of Israel feel oppressed by them. But it's not the Romans that they really have to fear. It's the Pharisees and Sadducees. These are the people who have enslaved them. Kind of like King Herod before them, the Pharisees and Sadducees have become so obsessed with their own power that they have begun to bring the people into captivity And rather than relying on the grace and the love and the covenants of God, they have just begun to think that just because they're descendants from Abraham, they are saved, right? It's become a matter of pride. And the things that they do for God aren't from genuine hearts of devotion. They're just from self-service and self-righteousness. And that is what John the Baptist is getting onto them. Because guess what? The people of Israel are living fairly faithfully to God at this point. Yet that doesn't mean they don't have to repent. No, he shows up. Repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. The king's about to show up. And when God shows up, he's not going to be happy whenever he sees that you're simply going through the motions of serving me. And so when he sees many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he doesn't just welcome them with open arms. These people show up and John the Baptist turns to them and he calls them a brood of vipers, right? Basically the equivalent of calling them children of Satan, right? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? right? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What you have to know about the Pharisees and Sadducees is that these guys would have been known as the righteous of the righteous. Uh, the Pharisees more so than the Sadducees. They're, the priesthood at this time period was very corrupt, and so the Sadducees might not have been viewed as the righteous of the righteous, but they might have been viewed as the clean of the clean, right? Uh, if you're thinking like Levitical terms, there's clean and unclean, and there's holy and unholy. The Pharisees were the super holy ones. The Sadducees were the super clean ones. Right? But both of them are coming to John the Baptist, and he gets onto them, and he rebukes them. And he says, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You might be keeping all the laws that you are calling laws, but your hearts are not right before God. And don't suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you, from these stones, God is able to raise up children for Abraham. So he gets on to them because in many ways, the people of Israel had become to depend on their own bloodline as justification for their actions, right? They're like, well, hey, by being the people of Israel, we are right before God. And John the Baptist is saying that's not how it works. God chose the people of Israel to do an amazingly beautiful thing, but that's not where salvation comes from. Salvation comes through a personal choice to trust in and identify with the God of all creation and the covenants that he has made. It doesn't matter where you descend it from. There are Gentiles who came to the faith. We saw this in Matthew's genealogy. This is something really big that Matthew has been highlighting, right? You don't have to simply be descended from the people of Israel to belong to Israel. And in fact, many of the people who are in Israel need to escape Israel to become the true Israel, right? They need to go into exile, they need to repent, and then they need to return. That is what John is communicating to these Pharisees and Sadducees. Saying Abraham's our father, that means nothing because God can make like children of Abraham from stones, right? God can do whatever he wants, right? All because you're descended from the right guy does not make you right before God. You need to make a choice. You need to get your heart ready. He is calling everybody to come back to God. And the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. John's message is clear. Judgment is coming. You'd better be ready. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John the Baptist is such a humble guy, but at the same time, everything he's saying is true, right? He's not just like overplaying his humility. No, everything he is saying is 100% true. He's paving the way for somebody to come after him. In fact, let me go back to Malachi real quick. I wasn't planning on doing this, but Malachi chapter 3, right? I quoted Malachi chapter 4 a second ago, but look at what Malachi chapter 3 says. Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. This is God speaking. He says he's going to send a messenger to prepare the way for him. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the Yahweh of hosts what's interesting there is that the word lord is not Yahweh it's Adonai and so god says i'm going to send a messenger ahead of me to prepare the way for me god and then while you're waiting for god the lord whom you seek will show up in his temple and the question is okay the lord whom you seek are you talking about god or are you talking about the messiah right? Because they're kind of waiting for both at this time, right? Are you talking about God or Messiah? Well, I think it's both, right? The Messiah happens to be God in the flesh, and the Messiah is going to show up, and he's going to get ready to establish his kingdom, and he's going to judge, right? And this messenger is the one preparing the way. And so if you take all these different promises and link them together, you have Malachi saying, hey, I'm going to send this messenger who is like Elijah to prepare the people by calling them to repentance so that God will show up in his temple to make everything right. And then you have Isaiah saying, a voice is crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That's who John the Baptist is. And he tells everybody, I'm just the opening of the show. He says, you might be coming here and I might be gaining this popularity, but I am absolutely nothing. I baptize you with water. Water? Piece of cake. right. All I'm doing is asking you to metaphorically walk through the Jordan River and re-enter into Israel as a new person. That's all I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to go into exile, repent, and return from exile. I'm just dunking you at water. However... He who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He says, I'm not even worthy to be this guy's slave. This guy who's coming after me, he's a whole new deal. He is way better, way more important than I. He's like the Elijah figure paving the way for the new Elisha. He is like the Moses who can lead the people to the edge of the Jordan, but only Joshua can lead the people into the promised land, right? That is John the Baptist's role. He says, this guy, this new person, this greater person, this this person who's going to show up and just change everything, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This guy is going to give you the Holy Spirit and he's going to judge. So you better get ready. Now, what's interesting is that already you see Matthew laying the groundwork that maybe the Messiah is more than just a human right? We've already seen him laying the groundwork for this in chapters one and two, where you have this virgin giving birth to a son and calling him God with us. And there's a way to interpret that metaphorically. Like, yes, God is still with his people. And you see that through the Messiah. But a lot of the things that he's been laying the groundwork for is the idea that God is coming in the flesh. Whenever you go back to Isaiah, the voice in the wilderness was preparing the way for who? For Yahweh. He wasn't just preparing the way for... The messiah he's preparing the way for yahweh to show up whenever the messenger is preparing the way for who he's preparing the way for yahweh and malachi right and then the lord shows up in his temple and the lord could be either yahweh or the messiah and so you see that matthew's laying the groundwork for maybe the idea that this messiah figure is more than what the jewish people at that time period thought the messiah was going to be and that's what john the baptist is communicating here this guy is a big deal. All I'm doing is dunking you in water. This guy, he's going to dunk you in the Holy Spirit and fire, right? Those who receive him, they get the Holy Spirit. Those who don't, they get the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is interesting, because the way that John the Baptist portrays Jesus' ministry is a ministry of judgment. But whenever you go to, like, the Gospel of John, Jesus says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But at the same time, Jesus does say that he judges. But also, there's places where he says he judges no one. I think that's because both are true. Jesus came for salvation, but through people rejecting him, they condemn and they judge themselves. And John the Baptist says his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will do the judgment. And he is prepared to do it. But notice where he's doing the judgment. Notice the imagery that John uses. He's going to clear his threshing floor. Interestingly, do you know where the temple sits? The temple in Jerusalem was originally a threshing floor. And the temple that land was purchased in order for a temple to be built on top of it. Well, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, guess what Jesus is going to do? He's going to stomp in there, and he is going to clean the temple, right? He's going to flip tables. He's going to call people out, and he is going to indict all the rulers of Israel, and he's going to get onto them and tell them, how could you do this to my father's house? So this is anticipating that, right? John the Baptist says he's going to show up, and he is going to clean out his threshing floor. And this is not simply talking about judging the Romans. It is not simply talking about judging all Israel. It is talking about judging the religious leaders of the temple and the holy, and ho- like the holy, holy people. Those are the people he's coming after. He's going to show up and he is going to judge. And he And there's basically going to be a line in the sand. If you're not with me, you're against me. Right? That is what Jesus is going to show up to do. He is going to get, make a dividing line, and people are going to have to choose. Am I going to identify with the Israel who has become Egypt and Babylon, or am I going to identify with this new figure who shows up fulfilling prophecy and doing all these things that the prophets said he would do? That is the choice that John gives. And he says, this guy's going to show up, and when he shows up, he is coming to judge. So you'd better get ready. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So we don't know how much time passes after John starts preaching and Jesus shows up. But Jesus shows up eventually and he says, hey, I want to get baptized. And John says, no. (laughs) He's like, no, you're the one greater than me. I'm the one who needs to be baptized. If one of us needs to go through the waters of repentance and baptism, it's me. Because John is not a perfect individual. John is a sinful man like the rest of us. He's amazing. And he's the greatest of all people born of women. But he's still a man. And the greatest man is a man at best. Or the best man is a man at best. That's what I meant to say. But Jesus shows up and he's walking perfection. And John knows this. And he's like, no, I need to be baptized by you. And that makes sense. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus says, I get that. And he doesn't deny that John the Baptist is correct. He says, no, yeah, you're right. I should be the one baptizing you. But he says, "Permit it at this time. Right? He's basically just roll with me. Right? This needs to happen. And he explains why. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's the word fulfill again, right? We've seen the word fulfill be used multiple times in regards to prophecy. And I don't think that this is not in regards to prophecy. I think that Jesus is making a statement here. All the other things we've seen so far in regards to Jesus have been prophecies that were fulfilled about him, regardless of his own choice, right? He was born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin. Those are things that a man cannot control, right? But now Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I am here to fulfill all righteousness. He is willfully choosing to fulfill prophecy by identifying with his people. And Even though, as we're going to see over the course of this whole thing, he is sinless. Even though he has no sin inside of him, he willfully chooses to identify with a sinful people in order to bear their sins in the end. That is why he needs to be baptized. And we've already seen this to an extent in the last chapter, right? He was exiled from the land of Israel while the people of Israel got to live there, right? So in many ways, Jesus is identifying with them. And even though they are the ones who are rebelling against God, he was the one who had to leave the land and come back, right? He is willfully choosing to bear their sins and bear their iniquities. And he's identifying with the people. And so he shows up and says, John, I get it. I don't need this baptism, but permit it because I need to do it in order to fulfill all righteousness. He says, I am here to do God's work. I am here to bring to fulfillment all the things that the Old Testament prophets said. I am here to be the Messiah. And if I am to be their king, I need to identify with the people. That is the only way to fulfill righteousness. And so, if I am going to have their story begin with baptism, so too my story needs to begin there. If they went into exile and are returning through waters, so I am going to go into the wilderness and return through waters. So, John the Baptist permitted him. He says, okay, fine. He knows better than to argue. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold— I like, like, little phrase like that. You see how the and behold is in blue? That's because it's unique to Matthew. And this is something that I've highlighted um, back in our introduction videos, that Matthew has a very Hebraic sentence structure. Uh, Just the words and behold right there, that's very Hebrew. Like, if you go read the Old Testament, you'll notice that there's a lot of and behold, and behold, and behold. In Hebrew, that's the word hine, right? Uh, Matthew's written in Greek, but uh, you see that his sentence structure is still very... Hebrew to where he's inviting you to step into the scene and view what's happening. So Jesus is baptized and he comes up immediately from the water and behold, he's asking you to see this. The heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Um, So this is something that obviously the original readers would not be aware of at first read, but as people who know Christian theology, we can say here that the father, son, and the Holy spirit are all three present at the same exact moment right here, which is cool because that they're all going to be present in regards to bapti- in regards to baptism at the end of the gospel of Matthew as well, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing in the name of the father, son, and Holy spirit, right? And so here we have the father, son, and spirit all together at the same time the spirit of God descending upon Jesus in fulfillment of prophecy, right? Whenever in the book of Isaiah, it says the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, which we'll see later on the gospel of Matthew. It descends like a dove upon him. And then there's a voice from the heavens. And the thing this voice says is an amalgamation amalgamation of Isaiah chapter 42 and Psalm chapter two. Uh, And we'll go more in depth into that in a future week. But this is what it says. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God himself testifies from the heavens that this man is the son of God and he is pleased in him. So God is identifying him not only as his son and not only as the Messiah, but as the fulfillment of prophecy. And so there is Matthew chapter three. And unfortunately, we're not going to go more in depth than that. Uh, we're going to try to blast through this. Like I said, you could spend so much longer on all of this stuff. But just to wrap up this video, I want to do what we've done in the past, and I want to look at how Matthew furthers his agenda of communicating Jesus as being Israel, and then also furthers his agenda of demonstrating that Jesus is the king. Because remember, in Matthew chapters 1 through 4, I'm arguing that this is Matthew laying the groundwork for the fact that Jesus has a legitimate claim to the throne. Uh, and then with chapters five through seven, he's going to do something different and then moving on he's going to do other stuff. But chapters one through four are specifically focused on authenticating the kingship of Christ. Uh, but first off we see Jesus as Israel, uh, and I don't have these in order. So let me just put them all together. Okay. Uh, first off the baptizer pronounces judgments upon the hard hearted leaders of Egypt who have kept God's people enslaved where we left off. Uh, I've basically been arguing that as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is following through the order of the history of Israel as you find it in the Old Testament, right? And where we left off before was Exodus chapter 4, with Moses Moses leaving the land of Egypt and returning to the land of Egypt to deliver the people, right? And since Israel has become the new Egypt, Jesus left Israel and returned to Israel to free the people. And then we see John the Baptist showing up, and he's pronouncing judgments on the hard-hearted leaders of Egypt, aka Israel, who have kept God's people enslaved. That's exactly what we see through the plagues that show up in in the story of Exodus, right? Exodus chapters 5 through 13, the Exodus events are this, right? It is Moses showing up on the scene, and he is calling out Pharaoh, and he is preparing the people for this mass exodus where they are going to free they're going to leave captivity. And it's throughout that whole narrative you see the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh. So you see the same parallel there. And then moving on, Jesus passes through waters before entering into the wilderness for a time of testing. We haven't talked about the time of testing yet. That's going to come next week. Um but this is a parallel of the people of Israel, right? Once they are freed from captivity in Egypt, what do they do? They pass through the Red Sea and they enter into the wilderness for a time of testing. That's exactly what we see with Jesus right here. And then after passing through the waters, the presence of God descends as God affirms their special relationship in the hearing of many. Right? So Jesus passes through the Jordan River and once he comes up, God shows up and affirms that they have a special relationship. In the same way, the people of Israel, they go through the Red Sea, they go to Mount Sinai and the presence of God descends upon the mountain and affirms that he has a special relationship with them, and he basically sets in motion this whole thing, right? And so you do see these parallels, and I know that when you look at these in isolation, it seems like a stretch a little bit, because I'll even admit, just looking at these three by themselves, seems like a stretch to me. But whenever you look at all of them, it seems like there is a very intentional thing that Matthew's doing. And they're not perfect one-to-one parallels, because this isn't a fictional account. He is simply looking at the historical account of what actually happened with Jesus, and he is telling it in a narrative that follows the Old Testament story, if that makes sense. But let me also just conclude this by talking about how Matthew authenticates Jesus' kingship and his messiahship and his Christship, in these verses. First off, he was preceded by a forerunner who heralded his coming. Right, that is classic king imagery. Right, a, a person who shows up and says, "Hear ye, hear ye, the king is coming." Right, uh, and also you see that in prophecy. Prophecy number six, a voice in the wilderness. So this is the sixth prophecy. We've Jesus. We have seen Jesus fulfilling within three chapters. Also, the forerunner was an Elijah like figure bringing out mass repentance, which in and of itself is a fulfillment of prophecy. Fourthly, he willfully identified with his people in order to fulfill righteousness. This is what every king is supposed to do. Uh, I've made allusions to this many weeks. Um, The people of Israel are never better than their king, right? And throughout the whole Old Testament, the state of the people of Israel can be defined by the state of their king. And so if Ahab is king, they're not doing very great. If Hezekiah is their king, they're probably doing pretty good, except for whenever Hezekiah is not doing good, and then they're probably not doing good either, right? And so if you want to know how the people of Israel are doing, you usually look to their king. Jesus identifies with them, and he identifies as one of them in order to bring about this fulfillment of righteousness. And then, fifthly, Jesus was publicly identified by God as the prophesied son and servant, right? And once again, we're going to go more in depth into those prophecies in the weeks to come. Uh, But those are five ways where just in these 17 verses, Matthew further demonstrates to his Jewish audience that Jesus has a valid claim to the throne. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank you all so much for listening in. And I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate, this has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.